The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 46.10, he wrote, speaking for the Lord, that the Lord declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel will stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Lord's ability to omnisciently, all-knowing, uh, his eternality, his ability to call into being the things that are not as though they are. And as we come to this book, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> It is unique for many reasons, one of which this morning in an introductory way is that when we read a letter or when we read a book, we typically uh, start out with a beginning and then there's a middle and then there's an end and, and the author will often end with what's called an epilogue, kind of summary things of closing things uh, up. <clears throat> and yet, when we come to the end of the book of the Bible, instead of an epilogue and a closing down of things that have been read before, we find in the first phrase, in the second word, the word revelation, which really means an unveiling. The original word, many of you probably are familiar with, it is apocalypsis, which means to unveil or to reveal. And so instead of, you know, closing down the, the things that God has said, now a, a whole new unveiling and uh, a revealing takes place in this last book of the Bible. It means an unveiling of things that were previously hidden. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now when you come to that third word in the phrase of, notice, a question emerges, you know, is this revelation, this unveiling, is it about Jesus or is it from Jesus? And the answer is yes. He is the revealer and the revealed. He is the revelator and the one who is revealed in its text. The word apocalypse in our culture and period of time today has come to mean somewhat different than what it meant as John wrote this letter. Because that's what it is. It is a letter to churches. And in John employing that word apocalypsis, unveiling, a revealing, when this letter got to the church of, at Ephesus or Smyrna or wherever it would have been read, and they got to that first word, apocalypsis, instead of, in our day and age, it seems to bring, you know, a sense of gloom or or. Uh, tragedy of things that are going to happen in the end, this 
word actually was received beautifully because it meant something new was going to be unveiled. And so we find that John, having been given uh, this great charge, this privilege of service to the Lord, exiled on an island called Patmos, employs the exact word that he knows the church will want to hear. Uh, Here, over the 25 years we've been here, we've gone through the Bible twice and the Gospels three times. I believe this is actually my third time hitting the book of Revelation. And so, as we journey through it, you know, we are going to just uh, continue to see the person and the focus, the revealer and the revealed of this uh, glorious book, Jesus. We are going to see him in ways that he had not yet been previously revealed to the church at John's writing. Which should... Uh, excite us, it excites me. We see that uh, in verse 1, God gave uh, him, Jesus, the Father gave Jesus this revelation of, of Jesus to show Jesus' servants the things which must shortly take place. Look at that, shortly take place. And we're going to get to more of that in uh, verse 3, but the emphasis there is that the things that are going to take place uh, in this book are going to take place within a short amount of time comparatively to the things that surround the things that will take place in this book. Let me explain. We have in this text from its beginning to its end we have uh, a description of the dispensation of the church we have uh, a description of the things that John saw we have a description of the things of the things that will come to pass I I draw your attention away from uh, verse 1 over to verse 19 for just a moment If you look at verse 19, Jesus is telling John to write the things which you have seen. That's one. The things he sees in this vision that he's now being given. And the things which are, which will be uh, the, the letter that is given to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Those are the things that are. John, write the things you're going to see right now. Write the things that are, and I will give those things to you to write. And then lastly, he says, and the things which will take place after this. Many of us might be familiar, but that phrase after this is uh, paramountly important to understanding the simple outline of the book, 
The word after this is metatauta, after these things. After what things? After the things that are. What are the things that are? The things that are are the churches in chapters 2 and 3. So throughout the dispensation of the period of the church, which we now live in, because it was birthed, you recall, 50 days after Christ's crucifixion in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost the Holy Spirit was poured out and the 120 in the upper room did see uh, cloven tongues alight on everyone and, and they all spoke with tongues and they, they glorified God and they poured out of that upper room into the streets of Jerusalem and did glorify God in many many languages we did see them and the church was birthed and the church has existed all throughout these thousands of years. But after the church, after the things that are, you see, because there's a promise in many passages in Scripture that one day Christ will come and he will take his church home. Yeah. And so what will happen after that? That's what John is to write. He's to write what he's seeing right now. He's to write the things that are during the age of the church. And then he's to write about the things that will happen after. And those things that happen after the age of the church really take place within a seven-year period. So they're short comparatively to thousands of years of church history and to... In the book later, it gets into the explanation of, of a thousand-year reign of Christ. So comparatively, sandwiched in the middle of that, the things that will happen after the church, immediately happen after the church, are short. They must take place, uh, they must shortly take place. We see in verse 2 that John was the one who bore witness to the word of God. In other words, that this... A text that he's being given to write is not of human resource. It is of divine origin and it is in fact God's word. That it is holy. And that it is a testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. When we come to verse 3, we find a very beautiful uh, promise, if you will. Very beautiful promise. We read it uh, that there is a blessing. Notice that. First word of verse 3, there's a blessing to everyone, notice, that reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. A blessing to everyone who reads and hears the words of this prophecy. Now it goes on to say to keep, but uh, I do enjoy what um, Amir Safari shares within his book, Revealing Revelation. And when he wrote that book, October 7th had not yet happened, even more appropriate it is now that in Israel, 
for most of their lives since 1948, and nations and people groups around them have sought to, to destroy the Jew and destroy Israel as a nation, it is a common thing in the land of Israel to hear rockets all of a sudden. The whistle of a rocket, which means there's going to be an explosion. And Amir genuinely shares that in many of the kibbutz communities and what's not, is that when they hear the whistle of the rocket, they know that it's time to take cover. And so they run to the nearest area that will shelter them from uh, the danger of an ex exploding rocket coming from either Gaza or to the north, Lebanon. And the illustration of that ties very clearly to this promise of a blessing. You see, there's the promise. There's a blessing to everyone who reads and hears. First of all, so guess what? You get to walk out this morning knowing that God has blessed you. You can say that. God has blessed me. Why? Because you're reading this book. You're hearing its words. All right. But like the Israeli who hears the rocket, the safety is not just in hearing the noise of that approaching thing but rather the running into the shelter of the thing that will save them from its danger. And likewise, true to you and I, there is a blessing in just reading. There is a blessing in just hearing. But the greatest of all blessing is to running into the shelter of the safety of the things that are promised to come in this book. And that safe place is a relationship with the living Savior, Christ himself. Running to that shelter. Not just hearing, but keeping the words in this prophecy. It is true that this book is a book of prophecy. And yet in the church today, uh, there are actually four views of interpreting Revelation. The four views go like this. There is what we call the preterist view, which uh, the preterist view views the reading of the book of Revelation, that all it is is symbolic of the struggles against the church, uh, the struggles of the church against Rome. That every prophecy in the book has already been fulfilled. There's, there's no prophecy yet waiting to be fulfilled. That this book just is an explanation of the struggles of the church with Rome. Preterist view. The second view is a historic view is that the book of Revelation simply symbolizes uh, the problems that the church had uh, with the world. The problems that the church has had 
with the world. It's not contemporary, it's not now, but it's for back then. This was uh, the struggle or the problems that the church was having. The third view is a spiritual view. It's called spiritual view. And it completely looks at the book of Revelation as an allegory. It, there's no uh, real definite application in the life of the Christian. It's simply an allegory without uh, application of actual events. Preterist, historic, spiritual, and there's one other view, and that's called the futuristic view. And the futuristic view is that as someone reads this book, what they are reading are straightforward accounts of what is going to come. Straightforward accounts of the things that are going to come. We hold this view, I hold this view here at Calvary Chapel, that this book is uh, now, this book is for us to know what is coming when that time comes. And if you've been watching the news, been living in the U.S. for the last few years, having seen so many crazy things, did you know that someone could declare a controlled takeover of government that would stop all businesses, stop military, stop all commerce because we say so? Who would ever thought that could have happened? Here in the free United States of America, well, it did happen. And we have navigated our way out of it, but it was a precursor to things that are coming. And so, therefore, this futuristic view holds extreme uh, and real weight. There's a blessing. If we read it and we hear it and we take action because of it and run to the shelter of Christ by keeping the things which are written in it. Why? Well, notice that last phrase in chapter 3. Three words, time is near. Four words, the time is near. And John writing some 2,000 years ago, having put that phrase there, has caused uh, much uh, what we will call inability in the life of Christians throughout church history to at times think that they are living at Christ's return at any moment. It's not new. Uh, there have been those throughout history who have uh, willfully said that, oh, it's never going to happen. They look at the promise of Christ's return. The Apostle Peter wrote about it in his third chapter of his second letter, Second uh, Peter 3, verses 5 through 9. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Science today is 
overwhelmingly unable to not uh, agree that there was a cataclysmic flood on this earth at one time. What they can't agree on is how many years ago it happened. But that world that was once here was perished in the flood. Peter goes on to say, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word. God gave the word and the rains came. The world we're now living in is preserved by that same word, God speaking. And it is reserved, this world, for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, you're probably like me at times... and it could just be any given day. It's like, Lord, come. Call an end to this, Lord. Maybe it was prompted by the horrible reality of the loss of a loved one. And you think, why do we have to continue to go through this bloodshed and, and mayhem on this planet? We see war and trafficking of of young people and babies killed. God, just end it. Will you please just come, Lord? And that's a justified, honorable thing to wish and hope for. It is the hope of which we live in, that he is coming. And we want him to come soon. Come, Lord. Come soon. But remember, that our timetable is different than God's timetable. And while we are over here uh, broken, grieved, at times even desperate to see an end to these things, the patience of God is saying, no, wait, there are others that I am bringing into my kingdom." And so the time is near. And we leave that time clock in God's hands. We see in verse 4 that John now introduces himself. says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And we know that, uh, well, we will get to the fact that the churches that he is writing to are real churches. We see them over in chapters 2 and chapters 3. They're real churches. Seven is important not to reduce biblical prophecy or biblical understanding to numerics, but Throughout scripture, numbers do have a meaning. Six, the number of man. Eight, the number of uh, completion again. And seven is another number that means complete. Eight is a new beginning. 
seven complete. There's uh, seven notes in the scale, and when you get to the eighth note, it's a new beginning of that scale again. Even things God has put into places that we know. And so he's writing to real churches throughout the area of Asia. And notice he says in verse 4, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So there's the declaration of grace to the ones whom John is writing to, to the churches from one individual, him who is and who was and is to come. He says also grace to you would be implied from the seven spirits. Seven again being numerical completion. It's a reference to the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the complete spirit, the spirit of God, the person of the Holy Spirit. For he goes on in the first part of verse 5 to say, and from Jesus Christ. So there we have a picture of the triune God, Trinity. And as many Bible teachers have brought out in the past, I will uh, stand on the shoulders of many who have gone before me, is the fact is you will not find Trinity in the Bible, the Word. And people will argue at times with that. Pastor, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Why do you use it? There are many illustrations you can use. I'll default to Amir's again. He says the word bacon isn't in the Bible, but I love it. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the triune picture of our God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, is replete from Genesis to Revelation. And so grace from our God, from the Spirit of God, from the Son of God. Actually, uh, we know also that John was referring to an Old Testament reference when he was talking about from the seven spirits if you in your leisure would go to Isaiah 11 chapter chapter 11 verse 2 you will find that Isaiah writes in 11:2 he describes seven aspects of the holy spirit 11:2 uh, says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that was that passage that Jesus stood up in the synagogue and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So we see here this invitation to receive the grace of God the Father, the person of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. And then John gives us six characteristics or realities, if you will, if you're taking note this morning, of the Son of God. So grace to you from him who was and is and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, here are these six characteristics of Christ himself. First of all, he is a faithful witness. 
That means that he faithfully represented the Father to the world. Faithful witness. Remember what Jesus told Philip when Philip asked, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what, do we want to know what God the Father looks like? Read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they each present Christ in a different picture, but the totality of that collage is what our God, the Father, looks like. And Jesus was a faithful representation, faithful witness of the Father. Secondly, notice verse 5, he is firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. And when I read that, I, of course, well, wait a minute. There were others that, uh, that were raised from the dead. I mean, he called Lazarus forth. And Lazarus w was ra raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, we have the prophets praying over uh, the widow's son. And he was raised from the dead. Peter, in the room with Tabitha, said, Tabitha, rise. And she rose. She was dead and she was raised. So what do you mean first from, ah, I get it. He's the first one who died, came back, and lives forever. Because everyone else who was raised from the dead ended up dying. First born from the dead and lives forever. What is that? Why is that important to you and me? Because there are more to come, more that will be raised from the dead and live forever. You and I are promised eternity that this life, when we pass from this life, if you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've made him not only Savior, but Lord of your life, that when this body puts off mortality and takes on immortality that we are not dead. We are living in the spirit. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not death and an end. It's a new beginning. We don't, we just change addresses. We're no longer residing here on planet earth. And if you've lost a loved one and you're here and hearing my voice, and that loved one knew the Lord, you can trust that one day you will see them again. If you are ready. Firstborn from the dead. We see thirdly that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And ruler over the kings of the earth. What does that mean? It means that as our omniscient creator who all things were made by him and through him and nothing was made that was not made by him is that we're told in scripture that that men are raised up and taken down according to the will of God according to the will of the son of God there is no one in power no king in place today that has not been put there with the sovereign authority of God who works all things together for the good to them that love him, 
to them that are called according to his purpose. And we look at, you know, this king or that king and we go, oh man, what's that governor, oh, I'm sorry, what's that king doing there? And we, we say to ourselves, you know, what's God doing? Well, we, his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. But those, those authorities have been placed there by God. He is ruler and they are subject to him whether they understand it or not. He is ruler of the kings of the earth. He came into this world a baby in a manger out of the womb covered in fluid starts by crying wrapped in a swaddling cloth and laid and the magistrates come to worship him and there he is God incarnate with that same precious sound. And yet he becomes king of kings, the Lord of lords. Faithful witness, firstborn among the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, he is lover of our souls. Look at that. To him who loved us. He is the lover of your soul. You're... I am 70 this year. And so forgive me if your generation is below mine. Ahead of mine, whatever. <clears throat> but when I grew up listening to songs before I committed my life to Christ, there were two uh, predominant influences in West, the West here. One was rock and roll. I don't know how they came up with that, right? And the other was Motown. There was rock and roll and there was Motown. But both of those genres of songs, what they were singing about was love. I know. You're ready, right? You ready? She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah. With a love like that. Motown was riddled with love songs. I can't think of any. So I'll spare you. Why? You know what? In the heart of mankind, why would two genres flood an entire uh, national ideology? Is because in the heart of mankind, we all want to be loved. Every one of us whether we can admit it or don't, we want to be loved, we need to be loved. And so, uh, searching for love in all the wrong places, and there was country as well, right? I don't know what your search for love is this morning. If you're looking at home, what you're searching for, but if you're in search of love, you will find no greater love than in the person of Jesus Christ who loved you so much that he died for you before you even knew him. 
Why? Because he knows your soul. Before you were even born, Psalm tells us that he formed us in the womb and knew the number of our days before we even such existed. And he loves you. And he has not changed. Behold, I am the Lord. I change not. He hasn't changed how much he loves your soul. So much so that he would die so that you might live eternally and know life and it more abundantly here. But there was something necessary. His love alone wouldn't accomplish that. It would be the door through which the action that would then allow us eternity with him and life more abundantly. And that is, he is the washer of our sins. You see it there? To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Washed in the blood of Jesus. Don't you just love that song we sang earlier this morning? Not the same. I am changed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't know if you can envision his blood washing over you, but I, I commend that vision to your heart this morning. We, as, a, as believers in Christ himself, need to see his blood washing over us and cleansing us. Because it has. He has washed us from our sins. Cleansed us in his blood. That's why we partake this morning. And lastly of these six characteristics, we see that he is the one who enthrones kings and consecrates priests. Verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is the enthroner of kings and the consecrator of priests. And he decided to make you and I who have come to faith in Christ kings and priests. You recall what the, the role of the priest in the Old Testament was. I've shared it many times before. I'll share it again. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to stand before God on behalf of the people and to hear his voice and to hear his love, to hear his directives and his commands and then that same priest and to worship that worship God and he was to bring the worship of God before God and then that same priest was to be to the people on behalf of God to bring his word to them his love to them his directives to them his commands to them and is it not an amazing thing that God has placed you and I and made us a kingdom of kingdom, kings of priests 
consecrated you who have come to faith to stand before him in worship and listen and hear and to stand before man with what you've heard and experienced. You might say, well, Pastor Hart, I, no, I don't, you know, my Christianity is, is secure, but I, you know, I don't like to share it a lot. I don't necessarily want to, you know, try and convert someone to my kind of faith. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm a quiet Christian. Okay. But if someone can come into the presence of Almighty God, if you can encounter such personhood as who he is and not want to share that with someone else, we need to go to the hospital. The hospital of the Holy Spirit. To invite the Holy Spirit to empower you, to come upon you and enlighten you to just share who this God of the Bible is in your life with those who this God of the Bible brings across your life path. Verse 8, and we'll close. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Which is interesting, this last little observation, is that as we look at verse 4, and there's the invite of, of grace being poured out from, and we're told it's from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, Jesus Christ. But then as we get down to verse 8, and we notice that there's been a transition, that this one who is and who was and who is to come is the same as the one who said, I am who is Christ himself, the Almighty. Wow. We are going to see and enjoy many things from this book as we travel through it in the weeks ahead. But this morning we, we focus again on Jesus as our faithful witness, presenting the Father to us perfectly, Firstborn from the dead, reminding us that we will live, we will rise again. That the rulers that are in authority today, they are actually submitted to the greatest ruler of the kings of the earth. That we are loved. There's, I mean, we go searching for love, searching for love. We are loved. I am loved. God, thank you for loving me. I hope you can say that in your heart this morning with such passion and reality. God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Enough to wash my sins away in your blood and cause me to be a king and a priest in your kingdom. We're about to take communion together and if you have not yet committed your life to Christ and you are seeing right now perhaps for the first time 
how much you are loved by God, then I want to invite you right where you are to just say this prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I recognize that Jesus died for me, that he shed his blood for me, and that in his blood my sins are washed away. Forgive me, O God. Jesus, come and live your life through me. I commit my life to you. And I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Amen. These elements are for each and every believer that has made that declaration. And today we celebrate again being cleansed by the blood of Christ who gave his body on the cross. Will you pray with me, church? Lord, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your word. We invite you to just receive our worship. We have come humbly, Lord, thanking you for what you have already done to secure our eternity with you demonstrating your love while we were yet sinners dying for us. And no greater love has anyone known than to give up one's life for his friend. And you now call us friend as we call you Savior, as we call you Lord. Receive our worship today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.